You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Lightland Radio, especially this side in the Southern Hemisphere. I know that many of our friends who are in the Northern Hemisphere are experiencing the opposite weather where it's either snowing or flooding in the UK. So we hope that you will enjoy the show with us, even though we're really hot and you guys are really cold. <laughs> My name is Andy Tate mm. and that mm, was from Cruzy, our co-host. How are you doing there, Cruzy? I, I was saying that because I was totally agreeing how hot it is over here. <laughs> It we is. are absolutely cooking over here. It's sweltering. So, uh, <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do we have somebody else with us today? No, no, it's just you and me, man. Oh, sorry, there's just, GK, just, there's just GK all the way from Aussie land. <laughs> Let's see if he's if he's able to join us there, GK. Absolutely melting down here, guys. <laughs> yeah, very hot. And Ooh. really, you know, thinking of all our um, friends in especially in the United States where it's freezing and also those parts in the UK where they're flooding and that, but very, very hot, very dry. We're in a drought season here in Queensland, so would ask people to pray not only for our friends in the United States and the UK and other places, mm. but also Queensland and northern New South Wales. Many farmers are losing a lot of their cattle and their sheep herds mm. because it's so dry. They haven't had any decent rain for about two years. Uh-huh. So please pray mm. for our farmers. But anyway, yeah. thank you, and I'm glad to be on the show with you guys again. Yeah, well, this is our Flint Flake show, our second instalment of Flint Flakes. And um, some of the flakes today, I think, are going to be more like steaks. But <laughs> we'll get into that as we go along. <laughs> so maybe I should say welcome to our Flint Steak Show. And mm-hmm. <laughs> we take it from there. But, um, very well done steaks. Yeah, very Yes. <laughs> yeah. Some of them more well done than others. So just before we go to our first Flint Steak, sorry, Flint Flake, Andy, <laughs> Do you mind if we talk about a couple of other things before we hit that? Sure. First of all, I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone for your support of the new show because we've had a lot of feedback. Yeah. So we really appreciate that. Thanks to everybody. Also, I wanted to let you guys know that there's a new podcast show coming soon and it's by a guy called Brian Day. Now, I had a chat to him today on Skype and Brian's in the process of setting up his podcast and his website and it's going to be at www.windsoftomorrow.com. So that's W-I-N-D-S, windsoftomorrow.com. And from what Brian's told me about the guests that he is intending to have on, it's going to be super interesting. And so I just give a shout out to Brian and all the best with your show. Uh, Maybe we can have you on ours sometime in the future once you get yours up and running. But just everybody out there that likes to listen to decent Christian podcasts, Brian will be having his own angle. He's got his own take. He's got a list of guests that he's got in mind. That will be super interesting. I won't give it away. I won't um, throw any spoilers there. I'll leave that to him to do. But his website will be operational, I think, in a couple of weeks' time, windsoftomorrow.com. 
And like I say, a big thank you to everyone who sent us all uh, uh, wishes of support and for all the feedback. Yeah. We got a couple awesome. of emails as well that I just want to say thank you so much for those emails that we got via our website. Those were all great, uh, mostly just because I had omitted certain things. <laughs> so thank you for correcting that because I wouldn't have known otherwise. I hope that I've managed to fix the little um, issues. There was one question about RSS feed, and we are using the feed via Revelations Radio Network. So our show is fed to them. So what I would suggest in the interim, please go and subscribe to um, RRN. It's a great mm. resource anyway. I will try and get a feed organized when I have a little bit of time just to try and do that. But in the meantime, please subscribe via RRN. And Cruzy, do you have anything to, to say? Yeah, there's some good shows on, on Revelations Radio Network. Yeah. Just talking about that, probably my favorite show is BID Radio. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank uh, Derek and Sharon for giving us a shout-out there and a bit of a plug for our show. And welcome to the PID listeners that might be listening to us right now because of that. Yeah. And howdy to Derek and Sharon if they're listening. Awesome. Yes, thank you, Derek and Sharon. That was great. And I really enjoyed the time that we had with you on Future Quake Southern Hemisphere. And you can go, go and look into yeah, that, that archive. It was fun. Yeah, just keep in mind that all of the old Future Quake Southern Hemisphere and Future Quake South Africa shows are still there. The website's still there. You can still go and download all of the shows that we did. Right. And we have got some selected shows as well that are on our new uh, website. So there are the Future Quake Southern Hemisphere and Future Quake uh, South Africa shows that have their own little archive as well on our new website. So you're welcome to get it from there too. Mm -hmm. And keep listening. Let us know mm. what you think. And um, just before we go to your flint flake, Andy, um, I just want to say, g'day to Dee, how's it? <laughs> how's Hello, it Dee. What's <laughs> Sorry, that was the wrong person. How's it, Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> when Christ was born, in accordance with prophecy at Bethlehem in Judea, Herod was asked by the Magi from the east where they could find the one who was born king of the Jews. For they had seen his star, and for that reason had made this long journey in their eagerness to worship as God the child that had been born. Herod was badly shaken by the inquiry, thinking that his throne was in danger. So he consulted the teachers of the law among the people and asked them where they expected the Christ to be born. When he heard Micah's prophecy foretelling the birth at Bethlehem, he issued a single decree ordering the destruction in Bethlehem and all its neighborhood of the male infants of two years and under, in accordance with the time he had found out from the Magi, naturally supposing that Jesus would certainly suffer the same fate as those of his own age. However, the plot was forestalled by the removal of the child to Egypt, as by the appearance of an angel his parents had learnt in time what was to come. The story may be studied in the sacred gospel record. In this connection, it is worthwhile to recall the price paid by Herod for his crime against Christ and the other babies. Instantly, without the shortest delay, divine justice overtook him, while still alive giving him a foretaste of what awaited him in the next world. This is not the place to list the ways in which he dimmed the supposed glories of his reign by the successive calamities that befell his house the revolting murder of wife, children and all who were bound to him by the closest ties of blood and affection. No tragic drama is as dark as their story, of which Josephus has given a full account in his histories. 
How from the moment of that plot against our Saviour and the other helpless infants, a scourge wielded by the hand of God struck Herod and drove him to death, we should do well to hear from the lips of that historian. In Jewish Antiquities, Book 17, he describes his terrible end in these words. Herod's sickness grew steadily worse as God exacted punishment for his iniquities. He was consumed by a slow fire, which gave no clear indication to the touch of the burning heat that added so much to his internal miseries. He had an overpowering desire for food, which was impossible to satisfy, ulceration of the intestines with agonizing pains in the lower bowel, and a clammy, transparent humor covering the feet. The abdomen was in the same miserable state, and in the genitals mortification set in, breeding worms. Breathing was constricted and only possible when sitting upright, and it was most offensive because of the heavy stench and feverish respiration. He suffered in every part convulsions that were unbearably severe. Those who practiced divination and had the gift of foretelling such things declared that God was exacting a penalty from the king for his continual wickedness. Such is the story as told by Josephus in the Antiquities. In Book 2 of the Histories, he gives a very similar account of Herod's last days. From then on, the sickness spread through his entire body, accompanied by a variety of painful symptoms. He had a mild fever, unbearable itching all over his body, constant pains in the lower bowel, swellings on the feet as in dropsy, inflammation of the abdomen and mortification of the genitals, producing worms, as well as difficulty in breathing, especially when lying down, and spasms in all his limbs. The diviner said that his diseases were a punishment, but though he was wrestling with so many disorders, he hung on to life, hoped for recovery, and planned his own treatment. He crossed the Jordan and tried the hot baths at Caliro, which emptied their water into the Dead Sea, water sweet enough to drink. The doctors there decided to warm up his whole body with oil by lowering him into a bath full of it, but he fainted and turned up his eyes as if in a faint. The noise of his attendants beating their breasts brought him back to consciousness, but having no further hope of recovery, he ordered the distribution of 50 drachmas a head to the soldiers and large gratuities to the officers and to his gentlemen. By the time he arrived at Jericho on the return journey, he was melancholy mad, and in a virtual challenge to death itself, he proceeded to devise a monstrous outrage. He brought together the most eminent men of every village in the whole of Judea and had them locked up in the Hippodrome. Then he sent for his sister Salome and her husband Alexis and said, I know the Jews will greet my death with wild rejoicings, but I can be mourned on other people's account and make sure of a magnificent funeral if you will do as I tell you. These men under God, as soon as I die, kill them all, let loose the soldiers among them, then all Judea and every family will weep for me willy-nilly. Later he was so tormented by lack of food and a racking cough that his sufferings mastered him, and he made an effort to anticipate his appointed end. He took an apple and asked for a knife, it being his habit to cut up apples when he ate them. Then looking round to make sure there was no one to stop him, he raised his hand to stab himself. 
Josephus goes on to relate that just before he died, Herod gave orders for the execution of yet a third of his lawful sons, in addition to the two already executed, and that his life was instantly broken off to the accompaniment of agonizing pains. Such was the final end of Herod. He paid a just penalty for the children he had put to death in Bethlehem and its neighborhood in his attempt against our Savior. So there we go. The story of the death of Herod is from Eusebius's uh, History of the Church. And we thought that today we'd focus this flint flake on the story of Herod the Great. I believe he was Herod the Great. Is that right, G? Exactly, yeah. So Herod the Great, who I understood from what Eusebius says in an earlier chapter, he became the first foreigner to be king of the Jewish nation. So perhaps could you let us know a little bit about the history? I understand you've done quite a bit of research into this, actually, G. And you know quite a bit of his family history. Um, but perhaps let's outline how he came into power. We could do a whole show on that topic itself. As we often say, don't we, Andy? Yeah. A lot of the shows that we do, if we had more time, you know, we could do uh, a whole show on the topic. But if I could just give a broad brush background to it, because it's interesting to note how he did come to power. But in the what we might call the intertestament period, you know, the Holy Land or Judea or whatever you'd like to call it, because it, its name changed a little bit here and there, was in between Egypt under the Ptolemies and, let's say, uh, Syria and other areas under the Seleucid kingdoms. Now, both these dynasties were descendants from generals of Alexander. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a number of wars between Egypt and, let's call them, you know, the Macedonian Syrians or the Seleucids. And there was a number of wars between those. And, you know, sometimes control of the Holy Land passed between one and the other mm -hmm. over a number of centuries. But in between this toing and froing, you'll you'll know that a character that I often talk about, Andy, um, because, you know, I, I study this guy a little bit, is Antiochus IV or Antiochus. Antiochus IV, mm -hmm. Epiphanes, who called himself God Manifest. I think we even brought him up in our last discussion with Chris White. I think I mentioned him. And I know when we've talked to Peter Goodgame, I've brought this guy up because mm -hmm. I see him as a prototype of the Antichrist. Now, he defiled the temple and there was an uprising by the Jews led by, well, a dynasty that would become known as the Hasmoneans, but it was started by... Um, Judas Maccabeus or Judah the Hammer hmm. and he's the one who led the revolt against Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire and threw them out of the Holy Land and he rededicated the temple to the Lord and that's where we get the celebration of Hanukkah comes from that time. Okay. Now his descendants was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Now like I said this is going to be broad brush but there is so much toing and froing and infighting amongst these guys as well. It's a bit hard to follow but it was from the descendants of his people of this dynasty like they'd be the king and the high priest at the same time or they'd be a king and they'd appoint a high priest as the descendancy went on. Hey, is that a word, descendancy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is indeed. Okay. <laughs> 
So as that went on, one of those Hasmoneans, now one of the sources I read, one of those descendants of the Maccabees made some forced conversions to Judaism of the Idumeans, where Herod comes from. Mm-hmm. And Herod's father ended up working for one of the kings. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an official at his court of some description. Now that was Antipater. And because he was so respected by them, he himself got to a point who we would eventually call Herod the Great Mm -hmm. to a governorship position of some sort himself. So enter Herod into some form of power as we know it. Now, another one that I'm quite sure of is that a bit later on, Herod the Great, to ingratiate himself with the Jews, he divorced his first wife and he married into this Hasmonean dynasty to Mariam, Mariam I. And his former wife Doris and her son were banished. Now Herod I think had about eight wives and several issue and it's really hard to follow because a lot of them had similar names like Herod and Philip and Aristobulus and all of these names all intermingle so it's a very very difficult thing to try and explain Hmm. um, very quickly if to follow the family line but it is available online you can go and look at the dynasty of Herod. But anyway to carry on from there, there was toing and froing amongst the Hasmoneans themselves, right? Or Hasmoneans, it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. But they had infighting amongst themselves. Now, this did get Rome's attention, and Rome came to sort it out. Lo and behold, the upshot of it was that Herod eventually became named as the king of the Jews, right? So he was given the kingdom yeah. and became king of the Jews, and that's how he got there. And as I said, he... Um, to legitimize himself and to ingratiate himself with the Jewish population because he he did consider himself Jewish, right? Yeah. You know, he considered himself Jewish as a Judaized uh, Edomite, yeah. but he also married into the Hasmonean clan anyway. So that's how we end up with Herod on the throne of the Holy Land. And we know most of the story from there. There are other historical sources, but we'll probably more likely discuss Eusebius and the Bible here. So sure. Yeah, maybe I can just add to yeah. that a little bit because um, Eusebius gives okay. us two accounts. One is actually from Josephus. He just says here, Josephus informs us that Herod was an Edumene, just like you say, on his father's side and an Arab on his mother's. And then he says, but according to Africanus, and he was no ordinary historian, says uh, Eusebius, the best authorities say that Antipater, Herod's father, was a son of a certain Herod of Ascalon, one of the temple slaves of Apollo. This Antipater was taken prisoner by the Edumean bandits when a small child and then remained in their hands because his father was too poor to put down his ransom. So he was Mm -hmm. brought up in their ways and then later befriended by Hyrcanus, the Jewish high priest. Um, His son was Herod of our our Saviour's time. So it's quite interesting to see the slightly differing stories, but still you can see at least the influence, uh, the Jewish influence that he would have had and and how he could have been linked to the Argemans as well. So whether that was by birth or whether that was actually because of um, them taking his father prisoner, we can't be terribly sure. But it is interesting just to see how he does actually come to the throne as the first non-Jewish king. You're right, because we are um, drawing from a number of different sources here. And as with history like this, often there might be slightly different angles on certain things. But for the most part, I think we can understand how that it happened. So, sure, because so, I know you've done a lot of research into Herod. 
I have not had that opportunity. But the very little that I, I have managed to do, there was one particular YouTube video that I managed to get, and that was Lost Worlds, Herod the Great. And I'm going to put that up um, on our show notes. And if you're interested, you can go and have a okay. look at it. Because really, cool. they go into more about his architectural achievements. Achievements. You know, as, yeah. as any good king or ruler <laughs> of those days. Mm. And Herod seemed to have some really incredible achievements in that. Some of those, and there were quite a number of them, but some of those include um, building the fortress at Masada, which I know you've spoken to me about before because it's of particular interest to you, G. Mm-hmm. He also built Herodium. The other thing that they talked about was that he was the very first to build a harbor, which I found quite interesting, and that was at Caesarea, and he upgraded the temple. So all of those things I thought were really interesting. The other thing that this particular documentary talked about was that he built this massive pool, which is called Siloam. Is that the right word? And um, they say that that was the same pool as discussed in one of the stories of Jesus, where he goes and heals the man at the pool of Mm -hmm. uh, Siloam. So those were just some of the things that he himself was involved with and some really interesting architecture achievements, I think. But if we look at that against what seems to have happened in his own family, and then, of course, the story, um, which I started with, of his death, it seems that despite all the crazy things that he did to his own family, and I'd love you to get into that a little bit if if you're able to briefly chat about that, but the story of his death, where Eusebius says it's almost as soon as Herod took the decision to go and try and kill Jesus that the sickness overtook him to the point that it pushed him to commit suicide, be it all in the most horrific way, if I can mm-hmm. say, you know, the amount of deaths that must have been caused as a result of that, um, the idea that he'd bring together all the eminent men of every village, every village, could you just imagine that, in the whole of Judea, and then lock them up in the Hippodrome and, and kill them at the moment he dies so that uh, the Jews would actually mourn for him willy-nilly, <laughs> I think his heart gets mentioned. And it really well, does Well, he sounds show like a you. complete narcissist, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, You know, he did have family members put to death. He wouldn't hold back. He did everything to, you know, advance himself. Um, Like he killed family members. There was no problems there. Mm. Um, He had no hesitation whatsoever to do those sort of things. So that story, I I actually haven't heard that outside of Eusebius. Mm. So I find that one interesting as well. But yes, no, look, he wasn't adverse to doing those sort of things, even to family members and anything like that. So I, I see him as the, the complete narcissist. Now, I know that the secular historians or secular world will want to focus on his architecture because right. some of that stuff is amazing. Right. And I'd really love a lot of extra time to talk about it, but we won't. But I, I have dunked myself in the pool of Siloam. Wow. Um, and. And I have been to Masada. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my, it, well, it is my favourite place on the planet. And I love going to these places and checking them out for the historical and for the scriptural angle of things. But the zealots in AD 70, they took over Masada um, when the Romans invaded and destroyed Jerusalem. The zealots fled to Masada mm-hmm. and they spent a certain amount of time up there in Herod's palace mm-hmm. uh, and fortified the place and held the Romans off. But that's another story. But yes, I've seen his palace at Masada, the Pool of Siloam, uh, the Western Wall, 
and all yeah. of those things are amazing. Caesarea, I saw the some of the leftovers of Caesarea as well mm-hmm. and really enjoyed that. And now you can understand why I'm interested in Herod and also the scriptures. You know, one feeds off the other, I guess, for the most right. part. Right. But putting those things aside, do we want to talk about some of what happened after his death? Did we want to get sure. into that a bit? Sure, because he dies, but then the throne does pass down to his own descendants, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. By the way, when I say dunk myself in the pool of Siloam, I dipped my finger in it, by the way. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I did. I did. Um, okay. And I have a photograph of me dunking myself in the pool of Siloam. Um, <laughs> now, when he died in his place, three of his sons were named heirs to certain parts of the region, you know. But the main one that we know about from the scriptures is Herod Antipas, who okay. is, uh, you know, the direct son of Herod. Now, this is a guy that when we read in the scriptures about, uh, you know, the beheading of John the Baptist and the one that's involved in the execution of Jesus, that's the guy we're talking about. Now, I should have mentioned earlier, at that time and in this dynasty, there was a lot of intermarriage as well amongst them, um, cousins and Hmm. all sorts of things, you know. Hmm. Um, So there was a lot of that. Now, this Antipas, he divorced his wife to marry his uh, brother's wife. Mm. Um, And, of course, we know in the story of the beheading of John the Baptist because John the Baptist called him out on it, you know. Yes. But another interesting story, and it comes from Luke, is when some of the Pharisees come to Jesus to warn him that, you know, Herod is out to get him. And that's this Herod Antipas, the son of Herod. And Jesus calls him a fox, you know. He goes, he says, you go and tell that fox, Hmm. right? Now, I'm not sure what meaning this might have, but... When you read that in the Greek, the word for fox there is allopaque, but it's in the feminine. So he was probably calling him a vixen. What do you make of that? It's worth looking at Luke 13, and we'll start at 31, and I'll just read a couple of verses. At that time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. But he said to them, go and tell that fox, look, I'm casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside Jerusalem. Now, when he says that fox, I'm wondering if we could read it, you know, go and tell that vixen because it is in the feminine in the Greek. So I thought that was interesting. But you can go and read a bit about this Herod Antipas in Luke chapter 3 and in um, Luke chapter 13. But he might be in a couple of other places, but they're the main ones. Oh, and of course, in Luke as well, where Pilate sends Jesus before Antipas and Antipas sends him back to Pilate. We have that story as well. And um, that's how he's involved in the execution of Jesus. Hmm. Okay. Very, very um, interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. Now, another one that we have, and I'll just mention this guy briefly. We've got Herod Agrippa I, who was yeah. the grandson of Herod. Now, he's yeah. mentioned in Acts chapter 12. Um, and in there, it says that he did a lot of harm to the church. And he had James, the son of John, killed. And he also had Peter arrested. And that's the one where the miracle happens, where Peter's in prison and the angel comes and releases him from his chains and opens the prison gates and he's released from prison that way. So Mm -hmm. that's Herod Agrippa I. Now, that's the grandson of Herod the Great. The other one that's very interesting as well, and you'll find him also in the book of Acts, is Herod Agrippa II. Now, this is the one who, when Paul is arrested and he's held in Caesarea, And he's kept there by the two Roman procurators, Felix and Festus. Mm. And um, while he's kept there, because he's there for a couple of years, I understand, 
Agrippa II comes to visit and he brings with him his sister Bernice. Now, it's rumoured that they were the gossip of Rome because apparently Herod Agrippa II and Bernice were in an incestuous relationship. Apparently she had left her husband for her brother and because of the chit-chat that was going on, she'd married someone else but then had left him and returned to her brother. But anyway, you can read about them in the book of Acts and mm-hmm. Paul has a discussion with them, and it's very, very interesting. You can start reading in Acts chapter 23 up until Acts chapter 25. Hmm. Okay. So that's a very interesting story, and it's very interesting how Paul preached the message and had the opportunity to speak not only in front of Festus, the governor, but also King Agrippa and, and Bernice. And, you know, one of the versions of the Bible says that Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience hall. So, you know, they were uh, very special guests to have in the city. There was also, you know, prominent people and um, Paul got the opportunity to speak in front of them. Now, as far as I'm aware, that Agrippa II was the last of the Herods to hold any high office and to be called king in any way, shape or form. So Hmm. I think that was the end of them. So that's pretty interesting. And I hope we've given people some encouragement to go and have a look into certainly Eusebius and his version of events. Yeah. But also researching the dynasty of Herod and also look at the Herod family in the scriptures. You can just go and type Herod into a Bible dictionary, um, you know, online dictionary or whatever, and you'll get some very fascinating stories. But it's interesting to note that the secular world and in some cases also the Jewish world looks upon some of them favorably. Well, certainly Herod because he um, extended the, the temple. Well, cool. Well, maybe just before we end this little segment, um, just as Mm. you were chatting there, G, Mm. you spoke of Pilate Mm -hmm. and the affiliation with uh, Herod. Now, that would have been Herod, the son of uh, Herod the Great. That's right, yes, Herod um, Antipas, yeah. I just remembered that uh, Eusebius had also mentioned something about Pilate taking his own life as well. So here we have Herod the Great who commits suicide, Mm. and it seems that Pilate might very well have also done so, although I haven't actually gone to check this out further than just what I'm reading. But maybe let me just read this little bit from Eusebius. He says here, it is worthy of note that as the records show in the reign of Gaius, whose times I am describing, Pilate himself, the governor of our Saviour's day, was involved in such calamities that he was forced to become his own executioner and to punish himself with his own hand. Divine justice, it seems, was not slow to overtake him. The facts are recorded by those Greeks who have chronicled the Olympiads together with the events occurring in each. So, do you think that sounds like he must have committed suicide? That well, well, sounds like it to me. Yes, yes, because what I've read, and it's a similar source, is that it was during the reign of Caligula that he was exiled to Gaul, right, mm-hmm. and um, he eventually committed suicide there. But I'm not 100% sure of that. Wow. But that's what I think is probably what happened. But mm. I find another interesting point here just before we go, because I love the archaeological stuff, as you know. Right. You know, that the first physical evidence relating to Pilate, other than, like, of course there were coins circulating in Judea, you know, that bear inscriptions to the emperor, but minted by him, right? Okay. So these coins would be, you know, sort of minted under Pontius Pilate, but, you know, dedicated to the emperor. So, for example, during the reign of Tiberius, they would probably say Tiberius Caesar and whatever on one side. And then I'm pretty sure there's one 
um, that has got that. And on the other side, it's got something to do with Julia, the emperor's mother. Okay. But other than that, they did find a stone. Um, now, I think it was a block of limestone at Caesarea. Now, you remember we mm-hmm. were talking about Caesarea before? Yes. Um, yes. Which is attributed to um, Herod. Yes. And, and that's where yeah. um, he apparently built the first um, harbour. That's right. So um, they found, uh, like, it's damaged, but it's a a stone dedicated to Pilate, and on that stone he's called the Prefect of Judea. Now, from what I know, a lot of sources give a lot of them the rank of procurator, so many of them are called procurators, but in this one he's, he's called Prefect. So I'm just wondering if the earlier... Let's just call them governors because that's really what they were. May have been prefects and the later ones might have been procurators. But I found that interesting as well. But that is housed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And apparently there's a replica at Caesarea. Now, when I was in Caesarea, I'm just trying to remember, trying to rack my brains. I think we may have seen it and we may have photographed it, but I just can't remember. We saw so much in such a short time. But I think that's also interesting as well because there's so little about Pilate. And so, you know, you get some of these, uh, say, secular historians who would like to, you know, blot him out of history or whatever. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we do have physical evidence that he existed and not just written sources, but also, like I say, this stone that was found that dates back from that time. So that's pretty interesting, isn't it? That is, really, really mm. is interesting. And mm. um, I think this, along with going to have a look at that video that I will definitely put up in the okay, show notes, cool. because what I yeah. like about it is that they do like reconstructions of what they think it must have looked like. And I just find it, it helps me to kind of imagine it a little bit better, you know, what it must have been like in the time. Yeah. So I find that quite helpful, actually. Gee, thank you for joining me and for mm-hmm. all your input as well, because I, I really found that very Thank you for having me in your flip flake and I'll just say bye-bye now. Alrighty, so there we have Andy Tade's Flint Flake. I hope you enjoyed that. I think we could have done a whole lot more about the Herod and the Herod dynasty, but mm. we are trying to make them flakes, even though that was a stake. But did you enjoy <laughs> doing that one, Andy? I think you, oh. you, you, you got a lot out of that one. Yeah, I, I really did. I, I think it was just one of those stories when I read it, it was something that really just kind of uh, stood out to me because... I mean, we're talking about the time of Jesus. That's what I really love about these stories. And yeah. um, that somehow we can just relate to the time, try to find out more about what it must have been like to live then. Yeah. And also just the story of Herod. You know, we we did leave out quite a bit about his family and some of the drama that went on there. But as G said in the flag, it's something that we'd encourage everyone to go and uh, research. So Sorry, guys, i just yeah, got to get this. this a, okay. Hello? Hello? Hi, who am I speaking to? Hello, who's that? <laughs> uh, my name's Cruzy. What's your oh, name? Yes, you're the young man. I'm. Gonna, this is Edna. Hi, hi, Edna. Hi. Where, are you, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Happy Hour Retirement Village in Melbourne. <laughs> Sorry, did you say Happy Hour? Ret- yes, yes. I listen to your show all the oh, time. Okay. Doris and I, Doris and I were listening recently, and you were speaking about that lovely young lady. Oh, I can't remember her name. Um, uh, uh, Patricia. 
Do you remember that lovely young yeah. lady? I, 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 I really, remember, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I really like her, and I like that other guy. See, we were watching the the, the TV, and, and they sometimes put the Christian channel on, and there's that lovely young man. Um, um, his name's uh, um, Lenny. Lenny. Doris. Doris, is it Lenny? Oh, sorry, oh. Doris is... Doris has fallen asleep. But that lovely young man with the wavy silver hair. And and when we were watching him, um, he, I'm, I'm certain one day he flicked his jacket around and I'm certain mm-hmm. a, possum, a possum popped its head out of his hair. And there you go. Hello, possums, you know. And, 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 and I, I, I nudged Doris, but Doris had drifted off. And, and, and anyway, I just wondered, since you were talking about I'm not sure if that lady's his girlfriend. Is that lady's his girlfriend? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm really not. I, I can't. I can't say. <laughs> well, well, but, well, but, but, mm-hmm. but you like. But you like him. You say. And you, and you like. Oh, he's a lovely. He's a lovely young man. He, uh, mm. he, he's a lovely young man. But but that possum. Like I'm sure. Like did you see the little face come out? Hello, hello, possums. Hello, hello. And then he flicked his jacket back around, and it went back inside his hair. You know the man, don't you? He's a lovely young man. Yes, I think his name is Benny. In. Is that the guy you're speaking about? Uh, I thought his name was Leonard. Doris is his name. I'm sorry. Dor- Doris keeps drifting off. I wanted Doris to yeah. come and make this phone call, but I'm sorry. Who, who's Doris? Doris is my, my roommate here at the Happy Hour. Happy Hour. I want to know. Okay. What, now, you're the young man that was talking to that lovely young lady. Can, can I ask, how did you get my phone number? Um, how did I get your phone number? Yes, because um, no, no one rings I, I, me. I looked it up in the Happy Hour telephone book. Oh, oh that's nice. Are you coming to visit me soon? Um. Probably not. Uh, it's, it's, it's unlikely. Um, I, I don't have a clue where Happy Hour Retirement Home is. It's in, it's in Melbourne. In Melbourne? Yes, okay. in Melbourne. Yes, yes. It, 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 it's slightly far away from here. Okay. I'm not sure. Where are you? I think you're, you're at Geelong, aren't I, you? You live at Geelong? I know. I, I, I live in, in South Africa. Oh my goodness! With all those lions and tigers and wild animals, mm. did you hear those possums? Like that lovely young man had that pop, and all those possums popped out of his head that time. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really get possums here, but um, yeah, lions and tigers, yes, we do. Right. Well, I, I yeah. wonder if you could send me one because a, a we're allowed pets here. We're allowed pets here, and they said we can have a cat. I can have a cat. So if you could send me. A- <laughs> Hey, if you can send me one of those lovely big pussy cats, we, we can have pets here. I'm, I'm not quite sure that's what they meant, but <laughs> oh. but sure, I'll, I'll I'll do my best. I'll, I'll send you I'll send you a photo of a of an African lion. How's okay, that for so a start? That that sounds very good. So, are you going to be on that Christian channel with that lovely young man? Hello, possums. Are you going to be with him? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not going to be on any show with him. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm wondering if he hasn't got a whole menagerie inside his hair, because when he flicks it around, the hair flies up, and you see all sorts of things. Like I'm just wondering if, sorry, if, sorry. if it's at all possible that he would have, you know, more than possums in there. Do you think that's true? I wouldn't know. Um, I don't know is, that is song, but I do know some songs from the from the good old days. You know, there's um, mm-hmm. "You Are My Sunshine." Can you sing along? 
<laughs> no, I'd, I'd rather you not do this. my sunshine. <laughs> Doris, get on the piano. Uh, my uh, only sunshine, <laughs> you make me happy when skies are grey. You know that one? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to put you on hold. Um, we've got another call coming in. Oh, Just a oh. second. <laughs> Chrissy, <laughs> Chrissy, seriously. You can go and sit in the audience in one of those, in one of those sitcoms. How did she? How did she? How did she find your number, Chrissy? How did she find my number? I've got no idea. I think somebody put her up to this, but yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I think it's a conspiracy. And now, there's no way I'm going to give your number out, so don't be looking at me. We'll have, it's, it must be a conspiracy. We'll have to, we'll have to ask David Strader about this. There you go. Where, where, was she? David in <laughs> where was she from again? Happy, David in on this. Happy Valley or something. Where was it? Where was she from Happy again? Hour, happy, happy Hour. Happy Hour. Retirement Home. Oh I like, I like how she, when she was talking to you, she thought you were from Geelong, because that's not far no, out no, of Melbourne. No wonder oh, she was really? so jolly the whole time. She's from Happy Hour Retirement. Happy though. Hour. <laughs> now, look, she, she sounds all right. I mean, uh, you know, anyway, she's all right. And obviously, um, she's a believer and, you know, hey, let's have a bit of, bit of grace. But, um, no, that was good fun. Oh, boy. Cool. So, so where are we, actually? Um, we, we're going to go over um, to, your, to your section now, G, your little flint flake. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to do um, GK's Flint Flake. We'll do our Greek spot. I will just say, um, before we get into it, that I hope people don't find it too heavy. I know, Andy, you said you had to listen to it a couple of times, and um, I guess if people would like to, you know, replay it a couple of times and um, and listen to it. But I strongly suggest you have your Bible with you for this one. If you're if in your car and you're driving or whatever, that's fine. But um, you can look up the scriptures for yourself, so... It may be a bit heavy. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to make them too heavy, but I think this will be interesting anyway. So let's let's go to this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 Hello and welcome to our second Greek spot with GK. Certainly hope you enjoyed our first one and show one. Uh, just a little bit of a caveat, which I will offer on occasion. Um, this won't be a Greek course, of course. It's just an insight into New Testament Greek. Um, it, we're offering it, hopefully, to encourage you to dig deeper into the Scriptures, and that's why we've called it a Greek spot. Um, another point to keep in mind is you, you don't need to be able to read or understand Greek to understand the Scriptures. Simply get yourself a good Bible in your language and read and read that. That will certainly be enough for any of us to read the scriptures in our own language. Um, my third and final point is on pronunciation. I've spoken about this before. We don't know how New Testament or Kine or Koine Greek was pronounced in the ancient world, so please ignore my pronunciation. Um, now, I know that it's best to learn New Testament Greek using the Erasmus 
pronunciation, and um, I have done that. But I've um, been listening to modern Greek speakers and how they pronounce words, and in su- and in some cases, like you can go online and find how they pronounce um, uh, New Testament in Greek. So some of my pronunciations will be mixed up with that a little bit. I apologise for that. So in short, ignore how I pronounce these and pronounce them however you want it for yourself. Now our scripture that we're going to be looking at is uh, 1 John chapter 3 verse 3. And the Greek word for today is hagnizo. Now in the introduction I read the first uh, three verses of 1 John chapter 3 just to give a bit of context but for thorough Bible study you really should go and read the whole chapter in context which we won't be doing here Um, now 1 1 John 3 verse 3 says and everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure now our word as I said is hagnizo and so when we read the couple of times in this verse the word purify or pure that's our word hagnizo and the reason I'm focusing on that word is um, it's not a word that's very common in the Greek New Testament Um, as far as I'm aware it's probably somewhere between five or seven times that it's used Um, another example and a very very important example comes from John chapter 11 Uh, verse 55 and that says now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves or to hagnizo themselves that will give us an indication of the point I'm trying to make with this word in that hagnizo is often associated with say ritual purification for example so it, it could mean to make oneself ritually pure, preparing yourself for something important um, like we just read in um, John chapter 11 uh, verse 55 now one of my sources that I use is the what's commonly known as the BDAG but uh, it's the Greek English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature and in there um, for Hagnizo uh, specifically uh, specifically listed for um, John 3.3 3. they have its meaning as to cause to be morally pure purify and um, you'll also find the same meaning in um, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 now for some further understanding of how the word was used in ancient times um We can go outside of the New Testament itself and we can look at one of the uh, apostolic fathers where um, in the epistle of Barnabas, which is dated somewhere around 100 AD, plus or minus 20 years, um, we find our word Hagnizo and this verse is in Barnabas chapter 5 verse 1, which says, For to this end the Lord endured to deliver his flesh unto corruption, that by the remission of sins we might be cleansed, which cleansing is through the blood of his sprinkling. Or a closer reading of the Greek might be become pure through the forgiveness of sins. So become hagnizo. One of the major points that stands out for me and others um, is that there are 
a number of, well, a couple of other words that um, perhaps John could have chosen, and uh, it's a very closely related word, is hagiadzo. Now, the word hagiadzo appears about 29 times in the New Testament, which is about four times more than our other word, hagnidzo. And a lot of the time that it appears, it's... um, uh, especially, um, I'll give you some examples. This is probably the best way to do it, is give you some examples. And we'll look at some examples in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Um, in Matthew 23, verse 17, we have, You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? So that there sanctified is our hagiadzo. Um... John 10.36 Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Um, So another time there it's translated as sanctify. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11 Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the and in the spirit of our God. Now it's used a number of times in Hebrews. Hebrews ten ten. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Um, another example, one Peter three fifteen. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defence to everyone who asks you to give an account. For the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And finally, for our purposes, we have one um, from First Timothy chapter four, verse five: "For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer." So you see, in NASB, majority of times, "hagiadzo" is translated as "sanctified" or "sanctify." So in Hebrews 2, verse 11, we have, For for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now the meaning that we can draw from Hebrews 2.11 in in our BDAG is um, to include a person in the inner circle of what is holy in both cultic and moral associations of the word. To consecrate, dedicate, or sanctify. And I find it interesting also in here, um, with reference to the terms consecrate or sanctify, um, we can have that as consecrate or sanctify by contact with what is holy. For example, unbelievers by a Christian married. And we can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, now they are holy. And so uh, both times the word sanctified used there is from our other Greek word, hagiadzo. So now let's turn to some specific examples of the use of our first word, hagnidzo, in the NASB. 
Now, our main text that we've been using is 1 John 3.3, but let's look at some others. So let's look at Acts 21.24, because I think this will highlight um, and bring out a bit more of the meaning and, and perhaps what I'm seeing, um, the difference between Hagnidzo and Hagiadzo, and why I think that perhaps John has chosen to use Hagnidzo in 1 John 3.3. 3. So here, let's start with Acts 21, verse 24. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Acts 24.18 In which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar, but there were some Jews from Asia. James 4.8 Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So we can see there a number of times that we have Hagnidzo as purify. Now we've seen that Hagnidzo is used about four or five times less than Hagiadzo. So my point is that John could have used a number of different words in our text from 1 John 3.3, but he chose to use the word Hagnidzo, which in my humble opinion has to do with being ritually pure. Okay, so we've done a little bit of back and forth here. We've looked at our first word, Hagnidzo, and I've given some uh, Bible verses for that. And then we've had a look at our next word, Hagiadzo, which would have could have been an option for John to use. And then I've offered a couple more texts um, with the word Hagnidzo. But what's this all about? What's my point? Well, um, the first thing is, um, the reason I wanted to do this Greek segment in our show was to encourage you to dig a bit deeper into God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean to say you have to go and learn Greek, but it is handy to know um, just a few things about the Greek and how it's used. And sometimes those things will encourage us, because I know they certainly encourage me to dig deeper. And, um, of course, um, we can all do that in English if that's our first language. Um, the second point is I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying here that um, you have to do something ritualistic uh, to be justified because that, that's not what I'm saying. And one of our texts that we did offer earlier tells us that. Now, I'd like to share that with you now just to just to be clear on this point. Um, so we did mention this text, and it comes from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. And you'll get my meaning here, hopefully. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and in the spirit of our God. So we know that our justification comes from faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. Okay, so it's not that we have to go back to doing anything ritualistically to have a relationship with God. Okay, so what's the point? Why did I bring this verse, um, our verse 1 John 3, 3 up? And what do I think it means? Well, I think, um, as we know, reading in context is the key. And I think 1 John 3, verse 2 is is the key to this because it's in context. And I'll read that. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies or hagnizos himself just as he is pure. So what, what does this mean? Well, we are preparing ourselves to meet our God. And I think that's what this is saying. We're, we're making ourselves pure so that we're ready to meet, meet God when it comes to our appointed time to meet him face to face. Um, because we don't know exactly everything right now. We, we're not completely sure of everything we're looking through a glass darkly and so we're not a hundred percent sure of everything and we can't be because no one knows everything so we're sure when we meet our god that we're ready to meet him and i think that's what this is saying and i think it's as simple as that we don't want to make it too difficult um so i think that's it and i think reading things in context help us not to make things too difficult if we rip verses out of context i think that's when we can twist them and turn them and make them say things that they just don't don't say so let's uh, make sure that we do um, read them in context anyway I hope you've enjoyed our second Greek spot with GK and I just want to say God bless you all and bye bye now So, um, so Andy, what did you think of that? What, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I really, um, I really did enjoy it, even when I listened to, you know, pre us putting everything together. And, um, mm. but it was definitely something where I had to sit down and focus because um, so often I think we get used to listening to things that are just, you know, easy listening, maybe if I can put it that way, where we don't really have to concentrate. But there, there is a lot in there that we can learn from. Hi, guys. This. Guys, sorry, yeah. can I just interrupt you guys? I've still got uh, somebody on the line here that I forgot about. So let's just quickly cut to that. She's singing. Edna? Hello? Hi, sorry, Edna. Sorry, 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 we're back. Sorry to put you on hold like that. Have you called me? It's, it's crazy again. Oh, that TV show. I love that show. You know, the last time someone called me, um, I bought this $5,000 vacuum cleaner, and I don't need a vacuum cleaner at the at the retirement uh, village because they have this lovely... Ca- that, just one, no, um, I'm, I'm not from a TV show, you know. <laughs> I thought I thought you rang up the set. Didn't I win a prize? No, no. I'm sorry, Edna. I'm no. I'm from you, like Flint you Radio. Like a, 
You sound like a very lovely young man. You know, are you single? Thank you, Edna. Do you have a... But yes, I am. A... <laughs> yes, I am, Edna. Oh, oh, I have a lovely granddaughter, and, and she would just mm-hmm. love a young Christian man like you. Mm-hmm. Are you... Are you, Is she you rich? Are you along? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm still in South Africa. It's very, very I far away. You, you didn't you say that you played for the Geelong Cats? You, uh, I, um, <laughs> no, no, no. Football? It, I'm sure last no, time I said, you were going to send me a photo of the Geelong Cats, and you were going to autograph it, and I was wanted to give it to my granddaughter. It was going to be so much fun. Um, in no. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put you on hold again for a second. Before you go, will you bring her to visit me next time you come? Next time you come, if, if I ever, If I ever come to Australia, I will come visit you, Edna. I'll give you the address. Wait on, wait on, I'll find, I'll find the address. Have you got a pencil? Wait. Have you got a pencil? You, Edna, Edna you, hmm? you, you can't give her address on the radio. Just let me put you on hold and, uh, and I'll get the address from mm-hmm. you um, off, okay. off the air. Okay. Okay, Th- okay thank Edna. you. Cool. That, is that she on hold there. again, Cruzy? Yes, he's put it back on hold now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, but what were we talking about? We were talking about the Greek spot. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, and if necessary, replay it. Sure, absolutely. Sure. Oh, and by the way, that does remind me, we do put the little separate Greek spot up on our website, which is lifeprintradio.com, and um, you can always just go and download that on its own if you want to do that. That's what makes it so much easier. If you want to just go and have a listen to it again, you can. You don't have to kind of wade through the whole show to find it. So there we go. So what's up next there, G? I think we're going to go to what are you reading this week with Cliff. Mm -hmm. This will be run into a few parts. Um, The book is The Occult History of the Elizabethan Age, and it is a very, very deep book. And as you know, Cliff does a lot of background work to Mm. all of his topics. So this will be a flint stake. And it probably will run to two or three. (laughs) We probably will do two or three parts of this, depending on how much deeper Cliff goes. But this first part, I know you've heard it already, Andy, and I know that you enjoyed it. It's about 20 minutes long, and it's the really deep background to the occult history of the Elizabethan age. To go and give you a deep background, Cliff draws you from the Babylonian exile right up to the Renaissance in 20 minutes. And in that time, he he covers many, many topics, including, you know, the Kabbalah and surprisingly the Christian Kabbalah and a lot of Jewish history in there as well. And we do all this in 20 minutes and it's probably amazing. So this will be another one you might want to listen to a couple of times. But I really enjoyed it. And when I heard it back, I thought, yeah, no, that's really good. I I enjoyed that myself. I just forgot when I was speaking to Cliff just how good it was. So let's call this part one. And in our next Flint Flakes show, we'll have part two of the occult history of the Elizabethan age. What are you reading this week? What are you reading this week? Well, welcome to What Are You Reading This Week with Cliff. I'm your host, GK. I'm coming to you live from my bush hut right on top of the Great Dividing Range in Australia, and we're about to talk to Cliff in Turkey. Uh, The book we're going to be discussing um, is Francis Yates' The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age, 
So this will cover a multitude of subjects and topics that I think you'll be interested in. And before we get started, I'd just point out that you might be wondering why Cliff and I will be discussing a book with a cult in the title. But I'd just like to say that, you know, the way we see it is that, you know, we want people to be aware of what's going on around them, aware of history, aware of how we got to where we are. There'll be a lot of that in this discussion and in the in the next one. And I would argue that we shouldn't be unaware of the enemy's devices and schemes. So with that being said... I'll hand it over to Cliff to give us the background to this very, very interesting book by Yates. So, welcome aboard, Cliff. Well, thank you, thank you. And uh, yeah, yeah, Francis Yates, uh, a very, uh, very good writer on a, a occult history. And uh, a lot of times, when we talk about what is a cult, uh, we're not really talking so much about uh, uh, certain uh, practices or beliefs that are really out of line, but what we're talking about is uh, uh, esoteric uh, kind of matters. And, uh, and, and the, the divining line on those kind of things can be really, really hard to uh, determine. And, uh, and and that's really kind of what, what you have with this. What she calls the occult philosophy is a stream of thought that has been around for a very long time. And it goes back uh, really all through history. I mean, you know, you could go back to uh, people like Pythagoras, who, uh, who who had the mathematics, but he also had the uh, the uh, mysticism that was tied to the mathematics. Uh, and Euclid, you know, with his uh, angles, and uh, and he was also uh, often uh, cited as philosophy. You know, uh, a lot of his geometric stuff was philosophical. And, uh, and, and so what you have uh, is that uh, there's a lot of uh, what we call science today that uh, was not always uh, a, a really a secular matter, but it was really more of a uh, borderline uh, spiritual and uh, philosophical kind of thing and uh, and like I say it would uh, it would even go into uh, religious aspects like I say where where do you divide the line where is the line for some of this uh, well it's always hard to say and, uh, and until uh, I, I personally I think uh, this is one of the reasons why we had some of the tumultuous uh, uh, historical issues uh, when we talk about what is God's role in history? I, I have the feeling that maybe what we're looking at is that God was drawing, drawing some of these things out and dividing science from some of these uh, uh, philosophies that really had no business being in, in our religion. Uh, so that uh, the Christianity in some way uh, actually shed some of it. And one of the consequences of all these uh, uh, tumultuous things like, you know, the Reformation and uh, the Counter-Reformation and, uh, oh, goodness, all, all, the, all the wars that went with that Thirty Years' War and uh, all that, that these things uh, eventually brought us to where we, right, we are right now with science being a, a, an opposed uh, belief system to uh, religion itself. 
you know, the, the very notion of God and it's being promoted by atheists. So, so that's really where this goes ultimately. Uh, and, it, but I've uh, done a lot of study on a lot of this because it's a, it, it's kind of a mystery and it's a, a curiosity on how it became a, a, such a, a forefront issue in the time of the Reformation. When you look at science uh, and uh, and the occult and how they were kind of tied together in, in this esoteric knowledge, you get to um, a lot of strangeness. I mean, for for one thing, uh, uh, the Jews uh, from the time of uh, the of the uh, Babylonian exile forward uh, were uh, considered uh, among the forefront of the uh, best wizards in the world i mean this is just just a strange thing that i I had been reminded of because i'm reading another book uh in tandem with this that mentioned that and and i'd kind of forgotten about that and and it it hit me on the head it's like oh yeah well why well i don't know but when you think about it moses you know, Moses was, was instructed in all the, uh, knowledge of the Egyptians. Did no Moses have secret knowledge? Well, yeah, probably. And, and that would probably be along the lines of something like this. And then we look at Daniel. And Daniel was instructed in the knowledge of the Babylonians. Uh, so was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and many other young men uh, from from the, among the Jews that were taken to Babylon itself to be to be schooled. So this uh, this connection uh, is not is not too unusual. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and another something you pointed out to me earlier is also um, Simon the sorcerer in the New Testament. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Simon Magus uh, yeah. in, uh, in yes. the Acts. Uh, yes. Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, when you when you uh, look at uh, some of the historical objections to Christianity, there are people who are uh, very uh, well schooled in uh, the history of the time and uh, in place of the Juda- Judaism of the time of Christ. And that time period was a time when there were a lot of wonder workers. And so a lot of people try to write off Jesus as just another one of these wonder workers, you know, just like Simon Magus. Right. Yeah. That, uh, that he, he knew all this magic and that's how he got the backing he got. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, something that does have to be addressed, uh, from time to time by, by apologetics, uh, because this connection is there. And it does have a certain amount of meaning. And, and when we look at the story of Simon Magus and, uh, and some of the legends that are attached to it that may or may not be true, uh, like the possibility that he may be the founder of Gnosticism and uh, may have also uh, written some books of magic that were uh, around in the Middle East uh, at that time, that... Uh, you know, we, we, we have a lot of these questions, you know. I mean, this this is something that does need to be examined. And it also needs to be addressed uh, from time to time. Jesus wasn't just a, just a, a mere wonder worker. Mm-hmm. He was beyond that. That's right. I mean, what he did was beyond that uh, to begin with. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, the thing is, is that a guy like Simon probably did have a full-fledged philosophy behind him. Right. And uh, this, this stream of... Uh, 
of thought that, that uh, has gone from a, from Babylon to Egypt. And the change from there uh, is kind of a curious one by itself. I, I can't find any material that really defines why that occurred. But by the time that the Greek world, uh, you know, had had become the Middle East, uh, you know, through Alexander, mm-hmm. yeah. that uh, the 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 Hellenist I should say Hellenistic I, yes. I shouldn't say Greek yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the Hellenistic era uh, the the transfer went to uh, Egypt for some reason and it's kind of funny I mean this is a this is kind of a serendipity I suppose that but the uh, but the hieroglyphics, no one could read them. This is something that becomes funny because uh, they, they, they made up all these meanings for them, and they were false. <laughs> so in what, what, so, what, what era are we talking about here? What, what age? Uh, the Hel- from the Hellenistic to okay. the Roman, up, all, right. okay. and, yeah. all through yeah. the medieval era and, and into uh, in, uh, Counter-Reformation and all that. Uh, <laughs> the the, the uh, things they ascribe to the uh, hieroglyphics are uh, really nothing but a bunch of gibberish. <laughs> so, so this is uh, something that has been a factor in the history of uh, of the occult. I mean, a lot of occult has been nothing but gibberish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For, for a long time. Oh, it's hilarious. When you start digging around, it's like. Oh, you're joking. It's like, they're not joking. Oh, my goodness, people really believe this? Yeah. This is sort of the, the, the very deep historical background, but um, and I don't want to preempt too much or jump ahead too much, but where we're going to end oh. up is we're going to end up in the, um, in the medieval age, aren't we, with something called um, Christian Kabbalah. Um, and, and I think that's going yeah. to be a shock for some people, isn't it? But. Yeah, yeah, it, it'll be for some folks, uh, and, and for some, uh, especially Hebrew roots types, uh, okay, they, yeah. they might not be aware of uh, okay. the fact that that's what they're dealing with, but yeah. uh, but it is. Yeah, the Christian Kabbalah actually, actually we'll be looking at a little bit of later time, uh, the Elizabethan era, which is uh, after, yeah, after the medieval and even after the Renaissance. So the Renaissance had even uh, kind of a um, peaked and gone on and. Uh, some people refer to this at time period as the later Renaissance, yes. uh, which is probably a good way to define it. And uh, it'll go right up to uh, the time of the, uh, called the Enlightenment. Uh, and the Enlightenment comes kind of on the tail end of uh, actually an anti-Christian cresting of, uh, of reason, yes. you know, the, yeah, yeah, the cult yes. of reason, yes. uh, which becomes a pseudo-pagan uh, philosophy that uh, tries to supplant Christianity. Uh, really kind of interesting how that all works. Uh, I think uh, what we saw with uh, with that that religious belief and uh, the uh, coming of uh, Napoleon is kind of a vision of what the Antichrist is about. Mm-hmm. Although I think what we saw is that the uh, religious end kind of fell apart before the, uh, the political did. Now I've um, I've had a bit of a peek inside this book, and um, mm-hmm. I, I, the little bit that I've looked at, Cliff, is um, uh, this occult philosophy is um, especially where we're, what what Yates discusses in the book. It has mm-hmm. its roots in Italy. Is that correct? 
Well, uh, not not exactly. Okay. okay. Uh, where, where it has its roots is uh, uh, through a couple things. The, the roots go from uh, Hermetic tradition, which comes out of Egypt. Okay. And that's uh, now, the, now, the writings of Hermes Trismegistus. So. Right. And what were they? What, now, was that was that philosophy, or was that magic, or what? What was that? The Hermetic tradition. Oh, uh, was it philosophy? Was it magic? Was it science? Mm. Was mm. it uh, calling up spirits? Was it uh, alchemy? Yeah. Uh, was it spiritual? Uh, was it religion? I'd say which one. Uh, you can't really pull them apart. Okay. See, that, that's why. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing the the soul as being a means of uh, actually re- reorganizing the scientific thinking. Mm-hmm. In the long run, I mean, you know, with Bacon, you know, in, in the Rosicrucian era, yeah. uh, you really get a lot of that where it comes out. And uh, the Rosicrucians weren't originally the amorc uh, people the advertising in astrology magazines. <laughs> you know, they, they were often very Christian. I mean, you look at people like uh, with the Newton with the apple. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but Newton, uh, I, I think, is a very good example of. Uh, of a Christian man who is involved in this this alchemy and all this philosophy before the garbage on top of it is shed, mm-hmm. you know. So so there's there's a there's a lot that's going on here that uh, it's dividing science from things that are not good. And it's also dividing some thoughts from things that came from pagan uh, root. And th- this this sort of thing did come into uh, Judaism uh, around the time of Babylon, yes. uh, the Babylonian exile. Yeah. So you you had a lot of that going on at that time. I mean, this like I say, this is when the Jews started become really well known as music- magicians. And we'd have to agree that there was were some great Jewish musicians as well. Yes, there were. <laughs> yeah, following David's footsteps. The thing is, is that it, you know, that there was a lot of these practices that uh, became part and parcel of the uh, of the returning exiles. Uh, you know, you start looking at uh, stay in this Judaism through the uh, time of the Maccabees. You know, there, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad. That's that's right. Yes. And uh, when Jesus uh, uh, opposed the, the uh, Pharisees, he didn't oppose everything about them. I mean, there's a lot of things that he, he actually agreed with them on. And uh, there were probably a certain amount of things that he agreed with with the lawyers and uh, possibly even the Sadducees. But uh, you don't get as much of that because they were, they were different parties and that they, they were probably a little further out of line. And the Kabbalah comes out of uh, all of this uh, Jewish... Uh, uh, past and the Kabbalah becomes part of this stream of thought and there are uh, some very definite uh, points of uh, agreement I suppose uh, the, 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 the ideas of uh, Hermeticism and of the Kabbalah line up uh, at certain places for us to be able to understand this idea uh, that Yates talks about of the Christian Kabbalah um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us what the Kabbalah is? Um, just give us a brief explanation of what the Kabbalah is. Well, that's that's where it gets into Italy. 
Okay. Mm, okay. Uh, yep. It actually uh, starts in southern France, and okay. uh, you have the book by here, and he had some. Uh, he had a lot of uh, um, things like the Merkaba uh, mysticism that came out of uh, out of uh, the Middle East, uh, particularly Babylon, and you know the past among the rabbis, and the, this this mysticism uh, uh, increasingly became what we know now as Kabbalah. And the Kabbalah was actually formulated in Spain before the uh, expulsion of 1492. Right. One of the things that happened with uh, the Kabbalah is that uh, when when they put it together, uh, Christian scholars got their hands on it and started looking at it. And they they were looking at things like the uh, the true name and things like that, and and they were they were comparing uh, comparing notes with the rabbis, and they were actually proving Christianity to be correct. Right. Uh, because the name uh, Jesus is actually a vocalization of uh, Yahweh, right? Which uh, which is basically uh, non-vocalized. I mean, it's all vowels if you think about it. So, so they were able to uh, show that, and it was making a lot of inroads on on conversions in uh, in Spain mm-hmm. and elsewhere, right? Which uh, which is really pretty interesting. And this Christian Kabbalah was not only that, but it was also very uh, useful in mathematics. That the the numerology of the Bible was able to be opened up. The symbolism of the Bible was also being they they were able to uh, to uh, to investigate it with a, with a new eyes. And it really created a, a quite a stir and a. In Bible scholarship, and it reintroduced uh, studying Hebrew as a sacred language, which uh, which is very important. Really, the the Western uh, the Western scholars were mostly looking at uh, at, at uh, Latin, not Greek, and and now they're suddenly they're starting to look at uh, Hebrew. So so you, you have this uh, the Renaissance that's opening up in Italy and. The, 1200s and 1300s, and then uh, accelerating uh, with the fall of uh, uh, Constantinople, which uh, uh, wasn't uh, the only cause of the Renaissance, but it surely contributed uh, to it. And this, uh, a lot of this same kind of uh, what we're calling the occult philosophy, because you're getting the Pythagoreans, you get, but big time with. Uh, with the Kabbalah, but also with the Hermetic uh, works, and the uh, the libraries of Constantinople had a lot of Hermetic uh, knowledge, and not only that, uh, also studying Greek. Yes. People started studying yes. Greek again. That's right. Uh, Erasmus with his uh, with his translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so this this is all consequences of what this is all about. So so you know when we when we're talking about this occult philosophy, we're not just talking about just, uh, you know, occult things. We're talking about things that are uh, actually beyond that, and some of them are quite legitimate. That have a historical nature and impact that resounds to this day. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with the, with the uh, actually, uh, religious aspects of science. Right, okay. Uh, as it is now. Yeah. I, I really do. I think it has a lot to do with that, and I think that's why a lot of people actually can, can, uh, can actually point out that science is, at some level, a form of neo-paganism. 
uh, as, as a philosophy or as a belief system. And, and I think that is the case. I mean, you look at it theologically, it's almost a, a Buddhist, uh, non-theistic core of a kind of a neo-gnostic mix of stuff. You know, you, you get the Collins brothers talking about that, you know, <laughs> with uh, evolution and stuff. And, uh, and, and they have a very valid point there. Uh, that, and that's where all this comes from. So that might be a good place to finish on for this episode, Cliff. So I'll say thank you for your time, and we'll pick up um, more of this in our next What Are You Reading This Week with Cliff. So we'll just say thank you and bye for now. Okay, Cruzy, we do need a joke somewhere. Can, can you pull one in? I don't know if that's going to we be possible after, after, after listening to the, um, the occult history of the Elizabethan hero. Um, <laughs> just to let you know, um, I'm not really a library of jokes, so you can't just say, oh, no, like Google, we need an Elizabethan joke, and then I'll just come up with one. Oh, no, I do not work like Google. Me. I've, got, so I've got many jokes, but I'm not Google. I've got it, Cruzy, I've got it. <laughs> okay, so that's Cliffy. Now to the cricket. <laughs> Uh oh. Uh-oh. You know what Cliffy reminds me of? Cricket. <laughs> How does he remind us of cricket? We have no idea, but we'll just go there in any case because that's part of our show place. And I couldn't think of a better way to introduce cricket. Oh, well so done. Just go well there. done. I love the segue, Cruz. That was an excellent, excellent segue. segue. It, it, well was, done. it was so smooth, eh? This is what oh, makes it was so really professional smooth. every time. Mm. It's. Yeah. It's. It's That's why like I get paid the big bucks around you. Exactly. I thought that was kind of like changing the gears on a big F100 or F250 yeah. truck without using the clutch. It's kind of, <laughs> you from know. First, from first gear to 13th or something. Without without the clutch, you do know how to merge, and mm. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, we do want to talk about the cricket just a little bit. I don't want to bore our listeners who, who aren't into cricket, but uh, Australia are in South Africa and recently Australia hosted the English cricket team in Australia and we won all five test matches and I think we won four out of the five one-day matches and then I think we won all of the, what do they call them, crazies of the, the 20, 2020s. So we were on a roll after not, not doing so well, but now we're in South Africa and let's be honest, um, South Africa is probably the top cricket team you know at this point in the world in my opinion and i didn't think we were going to go so well obviously being on their turf but so far we're doing pretty good cruise you'd have to agree i saw you posted something hilarious on facebook that image you posted today of one of our mm-hmm. better bowlers tell, tell us what that image Johnson, was yeah. can you draw it can you draw a picture of the image so just so people can get it well it was basically a, a photograph that came out on valentine's day which was yesterday and it's a picture of him holding five so, – sorry, no, seven proteas. Now, proteas are South Africa's uh, national flower. I should actually say is South Africa's national flower. But it basically says there on the photo, instead of getting a bunch of roses, he got seven proteas for Valentine's Day. Just a bit of a, a joke about the seven South African batsmen that he got out. That's right, because your, your team's nickname are the proteas, right? Yes, that's and so he scored. He scored it's, seven proteas. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's a very intimidating uh, <laughs> uh, emblem for a team. Obviously, a protea. You know? Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I must just say, we are such good hosts, you know. We always make a habit of, of on purpose, losing the first game uh-huh. when we're hosting a, a touring team, you know, just to make them feel okay. welcome. And from there on, you know, we really start playing cricket. Uh-huh. Um, it's just well, part of our part of our battle plan, you know. <laughs> no, no, you guys are, are great hosts, and uh, the first test is up there at Centurion. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that was. I had to ask you where that was. But, but um, Andy, uh-huh. your thoughts? Because I know that you would be glued to the TV screen um, mm. while this test is on. You'd be watching every ball. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So I, your thoughts? What, really, what, what, what I really want to know is just what, um, what would that mm. game be like on ice? Because I kind of feel like that's really where it should be right now. Um, you know, do you, do you think I the just, game would be different? Oh, I was more nice? interested in hearing your detailed analysis of day two's play. <laughs> um, what did you What did you think of it? That's uh, what I was keen. And the umpire and the umpiring decisions my, that my was made. My understanding was that day two hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. It did. It did. Don't worry. But um, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just leave it there. My, my comment, um, Andy, on on your review of the cricket would go something like this, mm-hmm. yes. and 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 that would be the extent of it. Yes. So let's move on. <laughs> Thank you very much. You just bowled me there for a six. And if you're interested in a, a legendary bowler, just go and Google Mitchell Johnson and check out his moustache as well. He's legendary for bowling and legendary for his moustache. Anyway, I just knew you were, you were right into it, Andy, so I just threw that your way. But let's let's move on. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that wonderful segue. But um, we're actually going to be going to your very serious oh, discernment cool. corner, mm-hmm. uh, Cruzy, after that cricket Segway. Do you want to tell us a little bit about? Yes, that? you know a lot of things have has happened in the last week and so on, and and I eventually settled on this for many reasons. But one reason is that you know if you do discernment, you need to get the gospel clear. You know at the start, if you don't know what the gospel is, then discernment is really uh, almost impossible. And this is one sermon that I found where Rod Rosenblatt lays it out very clearly, and also the difference mm-hmm. between the law and the gospel and how they both should be preached together. I think it's a good idea showing what the gospel is. So Mm. it's a good back-to-back with your last one. So I think this is a good balance for your second flake. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it it does show just that, you know, discernment um, covers so many different aspects. You know, it's not just um, perhaps what what people think where maybe it's just um, outing the bad, but it's also, you know, making sure that we have the balance of what it should be too. So I think everyone's going to enjoy this actually. I think Mm. it's going to be great. Yeah, and just before we go to that, I think if every Christian has a solid understanding of what the gospel is about, then it would be very difficult to actually mislead them from there. And I think it's a lot of a a big problem in the church that a lot of people don't actually know what the gospel is. And so they've got no solid foundation uh, to actually discern from the, what the preacher is telling them. Mm. So, yeah, let's listen to what the gospel is and what it is not in this next segment. Hey, 
Hey guys, it's Cruzy again with another edition of Cruzy's Discernment Corner. Now today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, last week we looked at the bad and uh, false prophets, etc. But today I want to look at something a little bit uh, more upbeat. You know, these days with seeker-driven churches and the psychologically-driven sermons, it's very easy to miss the message of the gospel. And I, I, I know a lot. I know a lot of people don't really get that message. Um, I want to play a short sermon today by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. It will absolutely blow you away. It's 20 minutes, a presentation of the gospel in five verses. And if you've ever wanted to explain the gospel to somebody in a short time, this is a good way of doing it. Now, without wasting any more time, let's get straight to it. And I know you guys will love this. In the name of Jesus, Amen. I begin with a true story, a story of something of which I was a part as a pastor here in Orange County. I was serving as an interim pastor at a non-LCMS Lutheran parish out on El Toro Road years ago. An interim pastor is a temp, called to hold things together as best he can while the congregation goes through what has become the overly long process of issuing a call to a pastor. It's a holding things together with bailing wire and bubble gum. One Sunday, we were talking in the adult class about the call to every Christian to witness to others about the gospel, to tell the story. Before people left that Sunday morning, I gave them an assignment for the following Sunday. The setup I gave them was this. Imagine a situation where a close friend or friends ask you what Christianity was, what it was about. I specified for them conditions that were as good as it gets. A close friendship with him or them over many, many years. Kids who played together each week. A situation where it was normal to phone one another every week about this, that, and the other thing. Maybe you vacationed together as families every summer. Your friends saw you as honest, intelligent, of goodwill, and so forth. He or they respected you in every way and without reservation. He or they, as Luther said, always put the best construction on everything that you do. So, the assignment was to take a piece of paper and write down the answer to their question, what is Christianity? Then bring that paper back with you next Sunday. Got it? The following Sunday, I was looking at 50 bright Lutheran Christians who had attempted to set the basics down on paper and realized they couldn't do it. 50 or so blank pages. Now, what I want to do with you in just a few short minutes is something so basic, so fundamental, that it's almost embarrassing to say the words. And even those words are not mine, really. I stole them. From whom? From C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory. His subject was that God delights in us whom he put into Christ. It was he, as an Englishman, remember, you don't embarrass anybody, who said that he blushed to even say the words, but he was going to defend that proposition anyway. God delights in his children adopted in Jesus. What I want to do this morning, embarrassingly, blushingly simple as it sounds, 
is walk us all through the basic Christian message in five verses. I picked five verses from my acquaintance with the navigators and, to a certain extent, from confirmation memorization. But the same thing could be done with a different half-dozen verses as well as these and another half-dozen different verses after that. How? Well, if you have what's called a study Bible, go to the ones I'm going to use and use your study Bible. It, would, it will supply you parallel verses everywhere in the Bible. Using a study Bible this way is a skill much worth having if you've never done it before. Or use your doctrine textbook. Doctors Mueller and Moss chose verses even better than our standard three-volume dogmatics by Franz Pieper. Why do this anyway? Well, we've all got to have some kind of organization or map telling the story. Plus, religious discussions have a way of wandering all over the map. All too often we never get through the story because we or our curious friends follow Alice down various and sundry rabbit holes and go completely off the rails. So, what's the subject of each verse, you ask? One, that all children of Adam and Eve, primarily me, you, have sinned. Two, that the penalty for sin is death. Bodily first, then forever in hell. Three, that Jesus Christ paid that penalty we've accrued by his death on the cross for each and every one of us. Four, that justification before God is pure gift as opposed to a matter of our works. And five, the assurance that one really is justified before God now and then forever. Two caveats. This is not mechanical, thinking something like Campus Crusade's Four Spiritual Laws. There will be men or women with whom you are talking who have so heard the law that you can completely skip the first two sets of verses. They're already so crushed, so broken by the law, that you doing any more of the law is totally unnecessary. So skip to the verses about, skip the verses about the law stuff. Go to Christ, his death, what his death did, what justification is. Why? Because your hearer has already gotten the bad news, but still is in need of you explicating the good news. Know beforehand that you are often going to be asked how you know this gospel is true, not helpful, true. And for that, I recommend our apologetics course here, no matter whether it's from me or from Dr. Moss or from Dr. Francisco, we're all doing the same sort of thing. So... Let's look quickly at each of the verses, shall we? First, that we, I first, then only the person to whom I'm talking, are sinners, are, are sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is addressed to rebels who hate their creator. That's me and you. The classic text is, of course, the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But there are New Testament parallels as well. For example, St. Paul's parallel in the first half of Romans chapter 3. Dark, dark, dark stuff. And it's about you and it's about me. This is, of course, not very popular. As Lewis said in his The Case for Christianity, the Christian story begins with bad news. 
Jesus said that it is only those who are sick and know it who have the need to go looking for a physician. Those who imagine that they are well and not sick unto death will ignore a physician. And I recommend that when we talk about sin, we use ourselves as illustrations. Lord knows there's plenty of raw material. Not using the sin of those to whom we're talking. Do it autobiographically. Your hearer will connect the dots between us all, you yourself, and himself or herself without your help. So I recommend that we use a lot of I rather than a lot of you when we try to get sin across in a secularized generation. And unfortunately, in our therapeutic culture, you and I probably have to contrast feeling guilty with being genuinely guilty. The Bible message is very concerned with the latter and not very much with the former. I can use the Ten Commandments to illustrate my failure, primarily the first, read Luther's Catechism, um, and again, not his or her uh, failure, mine, in the face of God's law. And I've heard some people do this same thing using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our primary problem is not that we feel guilty, at least according to the scriptures, it's that we are guilty. The key thing is that we get across that we are all already doomed, already face a completely holy and righteous judge, and are presently under his righteous condemnation. And the final will not be graded on the curve. There are only two grades, 100% and zero. And the standard for the judgment is his law. And that law in the Bible checkmates us. Each of us in his or her cell on the green mile and the sentence of condemnation already pronounced. The carrying out of the judge's sentence of death is all we can expect. Unless there is some intervener greater than we, someone who is not sick unto death, some rescuer champion greater than we. Two, that the penalty for sin is death, bodily death then forever death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This sin-death law linkage in the Bible is a matter of the entire race's sin as compared with my personal death, my personal sin. But regardless, it all comes down to the same thing anyway. I am a willing member of a fallen and sinful race, the one we call human. So are you. And so is your hearer, Gentile or Jew, it makes no difference. Rosenblatt has willingly, proudly, happily, and on a daily basis piled up against himself God's altogether righteous wrath, his retributive justice. If I say I just want God at the judgment to give me what I deserve, he will. If I see myself as somehow above needing mercy or grace, if I just want justice or fairness, God will give me exactly what I've said I want. Now, whether when I get justice, it is to my joy or to my terror is another question. Third, that Christ in his death on the cross paid the penalty I and you too owe. Romans 5.8 But God evidences his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've already seen that we deserve nothing but execution and condemnation forever, not just for our sins daily, but for the sin we inherited from Adam. And if one doesn't get us, the other will. 
We fare badly on both counts. But amazingly, that God who is perfectly holy and just, once in human time, that is during the days of Caesar Augustus, became one of us, took our place, and later dealt out his justice on himself instead of on us. This is Christianity, folks. Christianity is not about moral improvement, transformation, community, happiness, or any of the rest of that stuff. It's about the offended king giving his life and blood in order to rescue those who hate him. That's you and me. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. St. Paul, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. St. Peter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the tree. God was under no obligation whatever to do any of this, but he did it anyway. If you are going to some claimed Christian church and this is not the essence, the center of what is communicated to you every single Sunday, my advice to you is get out of there. Switch churches. If this amazing announcement of what God did for you one afternoon 2,000 years ago isn't defining, isn't central, isn't the message 13 ways from Friday, the old Lutheran fathers would probably say it's not really a church you're attending. It's some kind of weekly gathering, but a church it ain't. And I don't care how often the worship leader uses the name of Jesus either. If it isn't clearly about the Jesus who bled, died, reconciled God to you, propitiated God's own wrath for you, adopted you as his child by the blood of his cross, where God richly and daily forgives your sin on the basis of Jesus' blood and death, the worship leader's Jesus ain't the Jesus of the New Testament. Christianity is not about moral improvement, it's about substitution. The innocent one dying for the guilty ones. Correlatively, Christianity is not primarily about recipes for healthy relationships, better parenting, wiser dating, more intimate marriages, better financial responsibilities, or any of that. By nature, I again and again return to my own perceived needs as a dog returns to its vomit. And so do you, I'll bet. And we need a pastor to placard before our eyes, Jesus is dying to preach into our earballs Jesus dying for us, the good news of what Jesus' death did. Preach to us what we do not incline to, the depth of our sin, and that somehow the Jesus of the New Testament text is even greater than that sin, and that he freely laid down his life for it, somehow conquered our death for us by dying in our place. Christianity isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his identity and his work for us. Our only part is as beggar recipients of the overspill of who he was and what his cross did for us. It's about Jesus' death somehow putting us right with God. Very simply, Jesus and his substitutionary dying solved my real problem, sin. Regardless of the fact that I imagine my real problems are any of a thousand earthly problems. Scripture says I'm not even capable of knowing or diagnosing what my real problem is. I invent other problems, call them all my real problems. That's why I need Scripture to tell me again and again that my real problem is my hatred of God. But as I said, not just that. 
I need my pastor to be telling me that Jesus' blood and death have rescued me from the problem I didn't even know was my problem. And that it worked. How do I know that it worked? God, help me not by its making me somehow more moral or somehow better each day. Or happier either. Or experiencing Jesus, whatever that means. I don't have a clue. I'm to know that the cross actually did what Jesus said it did by the fact that the Father raised him out of the grave three days after you and I, by the way, killed him on that dark Friday afternoon. Four, that justification, or the more general salvation, is utter gift, does not involve any good works on your part or mine. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this one you know. For it's by grace that you're saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. The only righteousness that opens the gate of heaven for sinners is the righteousness that belonged to someone else. Christianity is basically about what the Father was doing for me and for you in the death of his only begotten Son one afternoon. What's our part in this deal? Our part is sin. And when we're talking to someone about grace, we're speaking of what the old fathers called the favor dei propter Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ. The law-obeying life he lived for us, but especially about his cross, blood, and death in our stead. Grace is the opposite of earning. The one is pure gift, the other is wages. We saw above that what you and I have earned is death. That's our deserved wages. But not so is the gift of free life. Deliverance by another so that in him we are part of God's gratuitous favor. God found a way to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The key Bible word here is imputation. Adam's sin was imputed to us, says the Bible. But then what we could never have seen coming, God imputed our sin to his son instead of to us. What Jesus was and did is imputed or reckoned to our accounts by the great judge. And what we are and have done, the judge imputes or reckons to Jesus' account. Our sin, the judge announces, was accounted, reckoned his instead of ours. Luther calls it the happy exchange. The righteous judge declares those in Christ as if righteous. Bang goes the gavel in the heavenly courtroom. And the judge's voice booms out, I declare you innocent. And I whisper to myself, but I'm guilty as all get out. Still, really, palpably. The judge hears me whispering. And he nails it. I am the judge of this courtroom, and my judgments are unassailable by anyone, including you, Rosenblatt. I declared you innocent, and mine is the final law of this land. You are reprieved now and forever. Your sentence is commuted as of now. When I reckon my son's innocence to you and declare you innocent, then I see you as if innocent. We aren't talking about morals here unless you mean the morals of my son. His morals and death are now counting for you, are the basis of my judgment, so there. Christianity is about imputed righteousness. His, Jesus' righteousness, imputed to you and to me as if ours. Correlatively, Christianity is not about our, our imagined improved morals and sanctification. 
Again, if you're at a church talking constantly about your improvement, go find another church. One that talks about your failure to improve and about Jesus' real righteousness imputed to you on your account. And who, a pastor who does it now, next week, next month, and forever. Why? Because your church is killing you. Five, the assurance that this, that we, I, you, are really justified before God. First John 5, 12 through 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Can an individual be sure of possession of this great present and future gift imputed to him or her? You bet. And the primary reasons we can know this are, one, that it has absolutely nothing to say about us and our moral state, but only about what Scripture says the death of Christ did that afternoon, and two, because looking to that and only to that as what justifies us before God means that God has himself put a wooden stake through the evil vampire heart of our looking at our supposed virtue as a way of earning our way in. It's admittedly, roughly, what the Bible means by the word repentance. He has repented you. It's 100% it's the righteousness of the Son and 0% any false righteousness of mine. The man or woman driven by God's Spirit to have given up on plan A, that is, I'll get six year better on the final and God will grade it on the curve, and has fled to plan B. God has justified sinners linked to Jesus by simple faith in Jesus' death. Can know that he or she is in, not out. The God who never changes, Malachi 3.6, promises that to you. In Jesus, you're in, not out. Now, and when you face the final judgment, what will you hear at the final judgment? A public recounting of all your sins? Nope. God long ago forgot them, and he promises he has. He can't even bring them back to his memory. You will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I tried to get this across in an address I gave here at Space Mountain that went public a while back. It was called the gospel for those broken by the church. We'll find ourselves in heaven. We'll probably say something like, you mean it was all that simple? Just Jesus and his cross and his blood? Well, I'll be damned. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Not one of us God-haters whom God has repented and faithed into Jesus' death, blood, and cross will ever be damned. Not a single one, ever. And then, as C.S. Lewis put it, the term is over, and the holidays have begun. Forever, the great marriage feast of the Lamb, in the body, and feasting on the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. Welcome, child, welcome. Amen, amen. enjoyed Chrissy's discernment corner. I thought that was very interesting. Well done, Chrissy. Good choice. Cool, Andy. It's, um, I'm sure everyone will enjoy that, and, and I know you guys did, and I, you know, after listening to that sermon probably about 15 times, I still think it's brilliant. Excellent. Excellent. And I'll keep you guys in suspense for the next one.
All right, no, that was good. Thanks for that one, Cruzy. I do have a few ideas of what might be coming up next, and, you know, I'm not one for spoilers, but I am looking forward to your next Flint Flake, which probably should be around show five if I'm correct, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, so that was a good show, guys. Thanks very much, and thanks to everybody for your feedback. Um, please feel free to write to us, and the details will be coming up shortly here. You'll be able to get our email address and our web address, so I'll just say thanks very much. Ta-ta. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. You guys can say goodbye now. And that was that was that was Cliff in Turkey, <laughs> saying goodbye. And thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Cliff. Bye bye. <laughs> and here's here's Andy Tate. <laughs> thank you for thank you for that, Andy. We'll speak to you next time. She she has to she has to edit this rebel. <laughs> <laughs> what a mess. <laughs>